listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are we? Good to see you. All right, let's go. First Peter chapter 1 is where we find ourselves. We're going to handle the second half of uh, the first chapter, verses 13 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible that is in the chair rack in front of you. And if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, um, you can find that on page 1014 of that, of that Bible in the chair in front of you. However, we have some new Bibles that um, are the similar type, but just have different page numbers. So there might be a few of those peppered in throughout the uh, racks. I don't know what that page number is, so you're on your own. Um, you can feel free to look at the table of contents to find that. But that's good news, because that means that um, these Bibles, which if you do not have a Bible, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible and keep it as yours. And so as we're replacing them with this newer set, um, that means that people are taking Bibles, so we're glad about that. Or it means that some of you have decided to upgrade Bibles on our dime, which, well, come on now, come on. That's the case, so we'll just let the Holy Spirit deal with you <laughs> as you read that nice Bible from Crosspoint Church. Uh, all right, well, as you're finding First Peter, let me mention, I know we've had a lot of announcements this morning, um, but let me just mention very briefly something that I would love for the military wives in our congregation, and I know that there are many to be aware of. In a few weekends, uh, Friday and Saturday, November 1st and 2nd, uh, my good friend Jeff Struker, who's the co-pastor and soon-to-be senior pastor uh, at Calvary Baptist Church here in Columbus, are hosting a conference called Hope uh, Beyond the Battle. And that is a conference specifically designed for wives of uh, military men and dealing with some of the issues that um, uh, happens in families when men come home from, from war. And uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Struker is particularly qualified um, to speak on this and, um, and minister along these lines. He w spent many, many years in the 3rd Ranger Battalion as, uh, as an infantryman and then as a chaplain. I actually was in Black, Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu back in the early 90s and is a dear brother uh, to me and I'm so thankful that after he retired from the army he is, is now in pastoral ministry here in this town where there are so many military families that need ministry. Uh, but if you are a military wife uh, we would love for you to go to this. Jeff called me this week and said that he has some complimentary tickets for folks from Crosspoint. Uh, and so we would love to give those to you. Please email me. My email is brad at Inside Crosspoint if you are a wife that wants to go to this. And we will um, make sure that you are able to go to this um, uh, free of charge. And we'd love for you to do that. In fact, just this, we, we have about 10 guys from our church that are, um, are serving with the 3rd Ranger Battalion that are deployed, as you know now. And a couple of them have emailed me through Facebook. And as you read a couple of weeks in the paper, there was four soldiers that are part of that task force that were killed. And I think this has been a particularly tough deployment on uh, those men. And of course, it's very difficult for, for the women as they wait anxiously for their return. And then when these men get home, the things that they have been asked to do and the things that they have seen are very difficult. And so uh, they need help. Uh, these families need help. So ladies, if you want to go to that conference, um, we'll make sure that that happens and that you can do that free of charge. Just email me. All right, First Peter. Let me read, and then um, we are going to work our way back to this text. Today, the second half of First Peter, I think, is standing on the shoulders of the first part of First Peter, as we've made a lot of over the years here, that the commands of the gospel, how we should live and what we should do, stand on 
the truth of what has already happened in the gospel that Jesus has died for us. So the gospel is not do this and then you'll be accepted. The gospel is Jesus has done this, trust in him, and because of that you can live the life that he has called you to. So let me read First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And as I'm reading, just have your ears tuned in to the commands, to the imperatives of this text. I think there's four that we want to settle on. Verse 13, therefore, which is a conjunction, which means in light of everything that Peter has just written, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these, these words. Father, we come to you now in humility and neediness. We come confessing our helplessness without you. Lord, these are monumental words. And we live in an age and in a culture that has turned the message of the gospel upside down. It has minimized the glory of God and the joy of salvation and turned it merely into tips on how we can live a more fulfilling life. Lord, we need reprogramming. Even those of us who are trusting in you, who are your children by faith in Christ, we need to go through detox week after week from this culture. So would you help us now? Would we feel the weight and would we see the corresponding joy that is attached to these words? I pray that you would stir our affections for Christ and his way. I pray that you, for my friends that are here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ, that you would give them a heart that can believe and ears that can hear and eyes that can see. And the only hope of that happening, Lord, is you first bringing them to life through this good news. Lord, would you do that? 
And would you help me? I am, oh, I am, I am a mess so often. And my life is full of insecurities and anxieties and hypocrisy and but yet you have made me righteous by Jesus' work on the cross. And you have me here now speaking to these people that I love so dearly. God, would you use our time to awaken and stir hearts for the glory that is set before us in Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. I think that people like us and churches like us that love to extol, to lift up and put an emphasis on the glory of God and his work in salvation through Jesus Christ, which I think is a good and wonderful emphasis that we should maintain. Having said that, I think that people like us at times are prone to miss the emphasis that also we see in the scripture of the consequence of the gospel that should happen in the life of a Christian. That because of what God has done in Christ through his life and death and resurrection to vanquish sin and death and evil and all of the things that are against us and has risen in victory over it, because of that, now we not only can, but we are called and in fact commanded to live in a way that is for the glory of God and for our joy, to be a display of His grace to an onlooking world so that they too can taste and see that the Lord is good. And my fear is sometimes for churches like us and for people like me, is that we are so captivated by the work of the Trinity in redeeming and rescuing and ransoming a people for himself that sometimes we do not then apply that to our hearts and feel the force then of the commands of Scripture that say, in light of what God has done in Christ, live this way. Because maybe some of us came from backgrounds where all the emphasis was on do this, do that. And so we've maybe overreacted to the commands, the imperatives of what it means to be a Christian. Because we are scared of legalism. And we just want to extol the glory of God's finished work on the cross. And we don't feel the force of the imperatives. But here's the one thing I want us to grab a hold of today as we look at, I think, four gospel-fueled imperatives that Peter writes to these readers and to Christians even in this day. There's, there's, there's one overarching thing that I want us to grab a hold of as we look at this second half of chapter one, and it is this. It is that because of the gospel, because of what God has done for his people in Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can change. In fact, we must change. We must then, as we trust in him, as a consequence of that, live the life that he's commanded us to live. And so I see in this text, there's probably more, but I see four gospel-fueled imperatives. So let's work through these commands, these imperatives of the gospel that we've reveled in the last two weeks in verses 1 through 12. The first there we see in verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first imperative that I see, Peter gives these people as a consequence of the gospel, as a consequence of the fact, remember, of verses 2 and 3 that we read, in fact, Anne-Marie recited it, that you have been elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So you've been made a Christian according to the 
foreknowing love of God who set you apart by his spirit, who loved you before time began and who caused the events of your life to happen and then opened up your heart and your ears so that you would trust in Christ. Because of that, now you can live this out. You are now to set your hope fully on grace, specifically the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, that final time when Jesus will come again and make all things right. Now the language there in verse 13, I don't know how many of you still use the King James Version, which I think is just full of beautiful language. There's, there's a really a sort of beautiful connection to the Old Testament that you could probably see more readily if you're reading that King James Version where it says there, before set your hope, it says something along the lines of, gird up your loins. Does anybody have a Bible that says that? Gird up your loins, which is just kind of an awesome phrase in and of itself. But this, is, this phrase is, is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 12 where God is commanding Moses to tell the people at the Passover event there where God is, is going to, he's, he's, he's marching through these plagues. He's wrestling Pharaoh's hand. He's wrestling his people from Pharaoh. He's executing these plagues and he's coming to the end and he says to Moses, tell the people to get a lamb, a spotless lamb, and to sacrifice that spotless blemish, uh, lamb without a blemish, and then to take some of the blood from that lamb and to put it on the doorpost of your doors and that when the angel of the Lord in the night comes over Egypt, when he sees the blood of the Passover lamb, he will pass over your households and will not strike down your firstborn children. And so God's people did this. They they sacrificed this lamb and they took the blood and they put it on the doorpost of their of their houses, and this became a foreshadowing event. In fact, one of the great foreshadowing events of the Old Testament, pointing forward towards Jesus, who ultimately would be the, the lamb that was slaughtered for us, and his blood, when it is applied to our lives, through our faith and trust in his work, God's judgment passes over us. But what's, 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 what's beautiful here is that in that Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 12, God tells Moses to tell the people to gird up their loins, which is essentially to say, tuck in your shirt and cinch up your belt and be ready to move, right? Because I'm about to wrestle you by my sovereign power from the hands of your captives, the Egyptians, and I'm about to free you. I'm about to liberate you. But I'm not liberating you just so that you can stay there. I'm liberating you so that you can go to the place that I've called you to be. In the promised land. And so what's happening here is Peter is using some of that same language. He's saying, gird up your loins, prepare your minds for action. Because God has made you a Christian through his foreknowing, electing love, set you apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ through sprinkling with his blood. Because of that, now set your grace, set your hope on the grace, the thing that will be finally revealed, Jesus coming and finally and fully vanquishing sin and death and all of its consequences. So he's saying to these people, cinch up your belt. I have saved you. Look forward to that future when all will be vanquished and get ready to move and grow and become more like Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? But, but let's just consider all of the false hopes. He says, set your hope fully on grace. Set your hope fully on that inheritance that we went over last week that will be revealed to you that Rebecca quoted is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As we look for that, let's consider all of the false hopes that, that we are prone to hope in. So I was just writing down some things that, that maybe we buy in as false hopes, money in our world, man. Instead of seeing it as from God for his purposes, we hoard it and we idolize it. We're driven by insecurities and temporary false hopes, aren't we? I mean, kids' achievements, you know? I mean, it's just like we live in a world where if your kid is not reading, you know, uh, 
Charles Dickens by the first grade, you just have this fear that he's behind. I mean, come on. Jeez, let the kid uh, play and, you know, take a nap. What else is a false hope? Maybe the perfect guy or girl that will, as that ridiculous little film about 20 years ago, Jerry Maguire said, will complete me. Another false hope we have maybe is just some level of physical fitness or some perfect diet or something or some whatever or some, some, some great uh, interior decorating thing that we can, you know, make our house look like. We're just driven by these, these, these false hopes that if I could get this, then my life will be okay. If I could marry that person, if I could get that job, if I can get that to that level of my retirement, if I, can, if I can just achieve this, then I will be happy. And Peter is saying the exact opposite. He's saying that set your hope fully on the grace, not some sort of temporary achievement here in this life, but set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means that as a Christian, your gaze, your, your chin, your head should be lifted towards that day that you are marching towards, that your belt is cinched towards because of what he has done for you in Christ that you are running towards, which is that day when he will come again and all will be right. A good thing can become a false thing when it is made into an ultimate thing. And I think we need to realize that our, our hearts and our world and our culture is full of false hopes. But Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus is finally revealed. Secondly, let's keep reading. There. It says in verse 14, as obedient children, and here's the second gospel-fueled imperative. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's the second gospel-fueled imperative as a consequence of what God has done in Christ to make his people right with him. Now we are to not be conformed to our passions, but we are to be holy because God is holy. Now we got to do a little bit of work here because I think we have grown up in a culture where we tend to think, many of us I think, that are probably 30-something and below, that, that's actually not me anymore, but many of you who are 30-something and below probably um, got your idea of holiness from a Saturday night live skit with the church lady, right? Remember that Dana Carvey skit? And, you know, there's just, just that sort of restrictive legalism. And so I think for many of us in this room, when we hear the word holy, that we are to be holy, we instinctively interpret it, and maybe even on a subconscious level, to be not joyful. Not joyful. That somehow God is kind of like some, you know, religious dictator who wants to restrict us of our joy, and that all Christianity is, is just a set of rules that we are to do, and that, you know, we just need to tuck in our shirt, comb our hair, be quiet, yes sir, no sir, and be good little boys and girls. Friends, that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Nothing could be further from the truth. When the scriptures call us to holiness, they are calling us to joy in God. This, this verse here that Peter quotes, you shall be holy for I am holy, he's quoting Leviticus chapter 4, verses 44 and 45, where God says this to his people, you shall be holy for I am holy, but he adds on this phrase where he says, so that he will be their God and he will be with them. Friends, think of holiness as being with God. Think of holiness not as a restriction, but as rest from all of our striving. When Peter commands these people to not be conformed to their passions, he's not restricting them from anything that would really be fun, but now they've got to just sort of grit their teeth. 
He's saying to them, be holy because that is where your joy is in Christ. So let's look at some of the, the things that we need to not be conformed with, the sort of the, the mindsets of our culture. Many young people, I'm sure, fall prey to this, just to experience as much as you can. Do whatever you can. Sleep with as many people as you can. Have fun for as long as you can until you have to grow up and you know, get a job and pay a mortgage. And friends, when you buy into that lie of this culture, you are conforming to the world's wisdom and it always sort of, it always sort of makes some sort of sense to our flesh at first, but ultimately it kills and destroys. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, listen to this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, do you realize there is a, there's a culture that is, that is trying to instruct us and teach us and conform us? The world is not neutral. <laughs> do we realize that? And all of the things that we consume, do we realize that it just may be having an impact on our soul and it may feel like a shiny apple, but when we bite into it, it's full of worms? Do we, do we realize that? Do you realize that, that what we just consume is trying to teach us something? Do, do you realize, young person, that the media that you consume is, is working on your soul? And it will lie to you and say that it's for your joy and for your pleasure, but ultimately, it never ends up that way. And Peter is saying to us and to his readers, don't be conformed to that, but be holy because God is holy. And don't misinterpret his call to holiness to say that you need to make yourself holy because remember, we just read through verses 1 and through 12 that he makes us holy through Jesus' work, not ours. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here's the next, the third imperative. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, now here's a word that is radically unpopular in our culture today when you're talking about our relationship with God, but Peter's bold enough to use it. He says, conduct yourselves with fear, with a reverential awe and respect for the creator of the universe. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And that exile is not a political exile. It doesn't mean that they've been kicked out of their country and they're just waiting to return. It means that this world, we are spiritual exiles here in this world and it's not our home. And that ultimately our home is with Christ. So Peter says, conduct yourselves with, with fear throughout the time of your exile. Back to that word fear. I think we missed the point in all of this, this talk in our culture with, I'm sure you've heard this, I have a relationship, not a religion. Right? Have any, anybody heard that? Has anybody not heard that? Not, I think we've all heard that. I have a relationship, not a religion. And I, I'm with that. I'm with that 100%. But I think that in our sort of cozy, watered-down American culture, we have sort of unwittingly, even as I think Bible-believing Christians, oftentimes crafted a sort of cozy Santa Claus version of God in all of our relationship talk. And we lose the force of what Peter is saying to us here in this second half of 1 Peter that God is sovereign and good and the creator and we have been created for his glory to live in a particular way for our joy and the display of his goodness to an onlooking world. So yes, yes, he wants a relationship, he wants our hearts, but he wants our hearts holy, consecrated, living for him in ever-increasing obedience through his grace. And part of the way that he makes us holy is through our reverential awe and fear of him. And, and Peter continues, how are we to have this sort of reverential fear throughout our temporary time on this earth? He explains it 
in verses 18 and following. Listen to these beautiful, I mean, there is so much gospel here. I mean, Peter can't, it's almost like he can't even get out a command without getting back to the gospel. Because he knows the nature of his readers and he knows the nature of Christians that if that if we spend too much time thinking about a command without tethering it back to what God has done for us in the Christ, we may think that we can actually accomplish it through our own strength. So even as he says, conduct yourselves with fear because, verse 18, of what he has done in you. So let's read verse 18, knowing. So how do we live this way? How do we keep this before us? How do we set our hope on grace? How do we not be conformed to a broken culture? How do we live in fear and reverential awe of God because we remember the gospel and he says it in verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers that means that you were bought with a price that Jesus it says this in 1 Corinthians 6 I think verse 20 we were bought with a price that God ransomed us through Jesus's work on the cross through his blood He purchased a people for himself from our feudal ways. Friends, there's so much talk sometimes about about generational sins. And listen, I, I think that there's certainly something to that, that generally apples tend to produce apples. And so if a parents have a particular sin or bent to do something, oftentimes their kids will grow up in that same way. But friends, know this, that if you are in Christ, you've been ransomed from that futile way. You've been ransomed from that generational curse. And don't buy into this cycle babble that you have to be the way your daddy was and your grandpa was and his daddy before him because that's just who you are. Friends, the gospel breaks that curse. We've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but listen to verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I think it's important for us to see there, here again, there's this imagery back to this Passover lamb just as, as God's people in the Old Testament were ransomed, were rescued, were redeemed, were set free by the Passover, the blood of the Lamb, which is all pointing forward to the cross, where Peter now says that we have been ransomed from feudal ways, not by perishable things, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, I think it's important for us to know that we've been ransomed primarily not, f- not like God paid a debt off to the devil or to evil, but, but what did, when that angel is going over the houses in Egypt setting God's people free, that blood is a sign not to Pharaoh and his army, but to God's judgment. And so God, listen, I think this is important for us to dwell on this. God has ran, God is not like in some, you know, Star Wars, Luke, Skywalker, Darth Vader battle against evil. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus hits a free throw at the end and we barely win. The message of the gospel is that we have offended a holy and righteous God And in fact, we are enemies of God naturally. And God ransoms us through the blood of the Lamb Jesus back from his own wrath and judgment for his glory and our good. So so do you see what the blood is protecting us from? In the Old Testament, the blood wasn't protecting God's people from Egypt. It was protecting God's people from God. And so, friends, when we read this here, that we're supposed to conduct ourselves with this fear, with this reverential awe of a holy God who will judge everyone impartially. 
And so therefore, cozy American who thinks that we can just sort of do what we want, confess Christ, and then continue to live the way we want, friends, that is not the gospel. We have been ransomed from the wrath of God for the glory of God and our eternal joy by Jesus' work on the cross. Friends, seeing that will cause you to have awe for a holy God who is not a grandpa, but is a glorious creator, sovereign God. Friends, more than we need to fear the president or the Congress or the Senate or the terrorist or the economic downturn or the devil or death, Friends, we need to fear a holy and righteous God who is holy and has provided a way for those who will trust in Jesus to come underneath his fatherly care. Friends, that is not the common message I realize that we hear in sort of cozy American evangelicalism, but I believe it's the gospel. We are saved by God, from God, for God. Do you see that? We are saved by God, from God, for God. And that should produce a, a sort of humility and soberness. And it is through that awe and worship and humility that the relationship that we so desperately desire is ours in infinite measure. He does this through the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was foreknown, foreloved before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Oh, that, that I would fear the Lord more, that I would be so consumed with God's glory and beauty and joy that it would cause reverential awe in my life that would push me towards him and away from this world. Well, let's keep going. We finish in verse 22. We see the last gospel-fueled imperative. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here it is. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God now don't misinterpret the first part of verse 22 where it says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love if that's all that the Bible said about how we are purified I could see where we might think oh well I, I do this I, I like by my works, I might make myself pure before the Lord. But in context, we read, I mean, he just finished this beautiful section that it's through him, through Jesus, through, through him that we are believers of God. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. So God has accomplished. He, he hasn't just made it possible. He has accomplished our salvation. And so verse 22 then is a consequence of our salvation that we now, in response to the gospel, live this life of sanctification, of growth, of, of purifying our souls by increasingly obeying truth and then look what he says there for a sincere brotherly love and here's the imperative love one another earnestly from a pure heart now a, a lot of commentaries that I read took this last section of the first chapter of Peter verses 23 through 25 and they sort of move it towards the the second chapter because the second chapter as we'll see next week is a lot of 
a lot of instruction about how we should live in community and love one another. And I, I actually think it does flow with the second chapter. But I, but I wanted to keep these three verses in here because I think there's a logic that's important for us to see is that as we set our hope in grace, as we aren't conformed to the passions of our, to, to the passions of our former ignorance, but we're pursuing holiness because God has made us holy and as we're conducting ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, I think it's important for us to see that this is not an individual sport, that he says that we're to then do this in the context of gospel-saturated, humble, grace-filled, earnest community, and that this should produce a real fruit in our lives. And it is that we should love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What does that mean? I think it means that we're just a group of people that the gospel has hit our hearts. It's made us alive. God has foreknown us, and he's put his love on us, and he's called us, a, set us apart by his spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and it has produced this life in us, and then that life has its head on a swivel to love and care for and serve people around, and it should produce a, a, a love for those around me. And who, who is Peter talking to? He's talking to local churches that are then to carry out this love for one another. To, to just sort of be simple and organic and to love one another, the people that are around them. Yes, in a sense, we are to love all Christians everywhere. In fact, in a sense, we're to love all people everywhere. But what Peter has in mind here, and I think it will become increasingly clear as we read on in the coming chapters, is that the consequence of the gospel is, is that we live out the imperatives, the commands of scripture to pursue Christ in the context of the local church to be a display of God's glory to an onlooking world that then looks at this peculiar people who are living in a particular way. And God uses that to draw unbelievers to himself. And so there's just this group of people who as a consequence of their salvation are serving one another. There's people who um, previously have never interacted with children or little babies. There's single guys who are in the army who are looking forward. In fact, I read this. Um, I, I often um, bash Facebook culture. Um, let me give a little good news about how I'm encouraged as a pastor as I read Facebook. I read a Facebook post about a young single soldier who's stationed at Fort Benning and who is looking forward to rolling up his sleeves and getting in the two-year-old room and getting on the floor and just loving children that he's never met, who are the children of people who he may not necessarily know personally, but he's just going to love people around him earnestly, and it becomes a sort of countercultural witness. Here's a guy who, I mean, come on. Why, why would he be doing that? Just because he, he wants to. <laughs> in, in my community group, there's this couple that um, heard about a need of a single guy in our group that was having surgery, and so they picked him up and gave him a ride, and these two people would have never met, and they just began to care for and serve and cook food for and give rides to this particular guy, and it becomes just a sort of countercultural witness. What is it about these people that they, they give themselves away like this? There's these community groups that uh, on one Sunday every month, they they, they leave their home church and they go into a part of our city in Bibb City where uh, it's very different from where many of us live and they serve alongside the dear folks at Highland Community Church and along with their brothers and sisters in Christ from their community, they love earnestly from a pure heart. There's 12, 13, 14, maybe even 15 couples in this room who are pursuing adoption or foster care. And this one in particular, this family just sort of stands out to me because, again, of all these encouraging Facebook posts where I'm sort of, you know, stalking them through Facebook to be encouraged, I admit it. But I see this family who's got these three beautiful children and lots of stuff going for them. And 
and they put the pause button on their comfort and they bring um, an adopted ch- a, a foster child into their home and they care for that child and, and that becomes a witness to an onlooking world I see some dear friends of mine in this church who are a little bit past child rearing age and they don't have children of their own and they go through many months of foster care training so that they can open up their heart and home to a foster child that they are awaiting any moment now. I see people in this room who just have their head on a swivel for young military families and couples and right now just can't wait for me to shut up so that they can invite that young, short-haired guy that they've seen down the aisle to lunch so that they can love on him. Right? These are just simple, organic ways that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And there are innumerable other ways that this happens. And Peter says that as a consequence of this great and glorious gospel, set your hope on Jesus. Set your hope on the inheritance that will come when he is revealed. Don't be conformed to this broken world. Conduct yourselves with fear and trembling throughout this time on this earth. And then let it just sort of bubble over and out of you and love one another and just just be sort of competing with each other to love one another more earnestly. And when, when the people of God just sort of wrestle with this and grab this, something absolutely beautiful happens. It becomes an aroma of Christ. It becomes an irresistible aroma of Christ where a lost world is caught up in broken pleasures and selfish pursuits and false joys is strangely drawn to it. And God uses that witness to bring his people to faith in him. Oh, let us not miss these gospel imperatives. So I started off with this phrase that I think the point of this passage is that because of the gospel, because of what God has done for his people in Christ, we can change. So Christian... Are you stuck in some habitual sin? Are you in a pattern of self-loathing and discouragement? Peter would say to you, remember the gospel. Fear God. And get your heart off of your, and your eyes off of your belly button and think about who you may pour out your love to. to a non-Christian that may be in this room, somebody who's not yet a believer in Jesus, who's come in and thought, boy, there's no way I could be holy and all these words that seem so foreign. See, I knew that this was just gonna be another deal where they're just gonna bash me about being a, a sinner. Well, guess what? You have found yourself on a merry train of jacked up people, right? If the person down the aisle that you think has it all together, if you think they have it all together, they don't. They're a train wreck just like you. Believe me. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> and if you think that because maybe I've spent the last 20 years reading the Bible and I can, I guess, halfway talk in front of people that I've squared away and... <laughs> I'm the captain of this train wreck. You can change too. In fact, you must change. You must be rescued from the wrath of God. And your only hope is not your ability to make yourself better or start attending church or cleaning up. Friend, your only hope is that God in his fierce and ferocious holiness would pass over you because of your trust in Jesus and bring you into his family as one of his sons and daughters. Your only hope is not yourself, but Jesus. Friends, do you even sense that right now? If you are, I think that's evidence that God is 
giving you the faith that you need to turn away from these futile ways and turn in faith to Jesus. Just look to him right now. Say, God, I, I, I need you. I cannot change. And my only hope is you. And what you have done through Jesus' work on the cross. He lived the life that I should have lived, the perfect life, and laid it down as a sacrifice on the cross to absorb and extinguish and satisfy your holiness and has now risen again in victory over death in the grave. And I may not understand it all, but I know that my only hope is in what you have done in Christ on the cross. And so I put my hope in you. And friends, if you do that, if that's the beating of your heart right now, friends, that came from God. Breathe. Look to him. Trust in him. Cry out to him. That means that God has made you his child by giving you faith and making you alive so that you can look to Jesus. Don't spend any time thinking about steps or prayers that start with the same letter or acronyms or humana humana or whatever. Look to Jesus because he is your only hope of change, which isn't just change, it's actually life in Christ. Look to him even now, friend, and be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, I suspect that many of us in this room, like me, have been Christians for years, some many years. But Lord, during this sojourn and exile on this earth, I am so acquainted that I am still prone to false hopes and former passions and futile ways. Lord, we confess that and we... Confess that our only hope is in remembering the gospel and living in humble, humble word-centered community with each other. And so God, remind us of that today. And Lord, for my friends that came into this room and were not trusting in Jesus, I pray by your good grace by your love that you would make them alive, that you would give them a heart to believe and trust in Jesus and that they would fear a holy and righteous God and that that would drive them to look to Christ and be brought into this relationship of joy and obedience and eternal life. Lord, would you do that? And would we, your people, respond and worship you now in light of this great glorious truth? In Jesus' name, amen.